So what, are, what we're really doing, although it's being done under the cover of uh, studies of the Orient and of Japanese culture and so on, what we're really doing is going down through the cultural, historical, religious, artistic manifestations to the fundamental games which life is playing. And if you get the hang of these, the comprehension of various culture forms becomes ever so much easier. You see, whatever you study, to become a master of the subject, you need to, re to realize what are the fundamental principles. And very few teachers of anything ever give them to you because quite often they don't know them. The Toddler's Philosophy is an amateur reduction of two dudes in a basement with no association, affiliation, cooperation, or combination with any other entities, primate or otherwise. The views expressed may or may not have merit, and the listeners are encouraged to argue amongst themselves. If you wish to express appreciation for the endeavors undertaken, please visit patreon.com slash philosophy to support the show. Send an email to philosophy at gmail.com, or rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For updates and downtakes, follow on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or subscribe on your favorite podcast application. Okay, so we're back with this goddamn haunting the margins shit. Again. Yeah, man. It's been a while. It's been too long. It's like dawdling within dawdling. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, someone that might be canonizable as the patron saint of dawdling philosophy. And you're like, what? No, I know. I don't hear it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I get it, but I think I get it. But anyway, yes, go. We're going to talk about Alan Warts and all Watts. <laughs> yeah. I found some little clips that I think illustrate how he, too, may have had some sympathies with our daughterly ways. Excellent. In the previous Haunting the Margins episodes, we've talked about Robert Anton Wilson. Never believe fully in anybody else's BS. And Terrence McKenna. Culture is not your friend. And there's a third member of this triumvirate of... 1960s, 70s, hippie, marginal guys. That was Alan Watts, for, who all were influential to me in my education, and who I all have respect for in different ways, and that I think all fit in our this notion that we were developing of the intellectual margins. Some of the things that I think we were agreeing on that kind of characterize the marginal characters <laughs> were that they seem to have an above-average sense of humor and incorporate humor with their intellectualizing. Mm -hmm. They violate taboos of central, moderate, agreeable, entrenched, institutionalized culture of their time. Uh, what they do with their careers seems to be different. They could probably, if they had that value set, choose to pursue a chair emeritus at Sioux City or something, but they don't, <laughs> and that they've got radical ideas. I think that Watts fits all four of those. Do you have any comments, additional thoughts about 
this whole just the not necessarily Alan Watts, but this co- concept margins that we're making. Yeah. So the thing that I always, you know, one of the the my main motivations for wanting to talk about people like this is because if people aren't taken seriously and yet you know what they have to say has some cogency or whatever you you don't feel that what they're saying is being you know is being said by a complete moron or whatever or somebody they they never jump the shark or whatever you know they never go in a direction that would make you raise your eyebrows it does make you wonder why were they and you know the ones we've talked about Alan Watts we're talking about today and any future people, why weren't they successful in terms of being incorporated or for their ideas being strongly incorporated into a more center, central part of the culture? And some of these people might have had a more success than others. I, I think that's something, that's a wrinkle we have. We've been mostly dealing with black and white. Like you're in, you're out, you're at the margin. But really, some seem to have penetrated deeper towards the middle the galactic center of intellectual uh thinking more than others it seems and it may be for various reasons that hopefully we flesh out a little bit each time for each person but my question then becomes in this long-winded ass fucking talk that i'm doing right now is well Okay, we could talk about, well, it's society and it's the economy and all that kind of stuff. But is there anything about the people themselves that is causing them to not be able to, you know, get along with the central body? Sometimes I think they don't, they wouldn't want to, you know, like (laughs) that they think these people are, take themselves too seriously. You mentioned humor is one of the you know, sort of tenets that we appreciate about uh, or that we have noted about these individuals. But so it's kind of an odd thing. I'm not, it's like, uh, and I, I can't believe I'm going to go here because I'm like not prepared to all of a sudden really talk about it. But it's like there's that whole idea of the Overton window, the idea that something is at the margins until some point later in the future or whatever, for whatever reason, the window, the range of, you know, degree that that is acceptable and not taboo in a society or whatever shifts, you know, and all of a sudden something that was marginal becomes central, you know, perhaps. I think so far these individuals, this, if the Overton window has shifted, it's not shifted much in their direction in the same way that you would think other things have in our society. Um, I think it's shifted in the other direction. Shifted away. One of the things that I've been wondering about is, and maybe there's something to be said for you can't identify these people at the time. It needs to be that they're dead and gone before they can be appreciated. I don't know. But who are the people nowadays? Like, where are the Terrence McKenna's of today? And I personally don't yet have them. I'd like to find them. If anybody out there listening... <laughs> has a suggestion yeah, yeah, for of sure. who are the countercultural, rebellious, but intelligent folks that have something interesting to say. I want to know who they are. And yeah, most of the messages from uh, Watts and crowd, I think, the, 
2020 America is further away than 1969 America. Yeah, but what they were trying to say for yeah, but you know the one thing I think about right now is like people would probably say members of the IDW or whatever, right? They would say that people like Eric Weinstein or peer review is a cancer from outer space. Brett Weinstein have I don't know who the person is who reviewed this, but they don't understand the material and all of their critiques suck. Been you know dejected. Oh, you're asking for it. Yeah, Peterson, he's another one. I'm a black woman who has two children. It's like they always talk about these guys. And when I was looking up the Alan Watts stuff, there was a genius or charlatan. And I'm thinking like, well, okay. As I understand it from what little I looked up, and I'm, I unfortunately am not the one here today that's going to be like throwing out the sources. But, you know, he was bright, very bright as a child. Some say he was a child prodigy or whatever. And that he... Uh, clearly just was, you know, moving along to the beat of his own drum to an extent. But that there's, uh, you know, he, he went and got his education and and uh, did a whole bunch of different things. And people can question his motives and we can maybe, maybe talk about them. I don't know. But I think about some of these other people of the IDW, many of them are in academia. But would you say Peterson is definitely in the center? Like, I think a lot of people, like, really despise him. Zizek is another person who people despise. Wisdom is the most disgusting thing you can imagine. And yet, is he not incorporated in the academy to an extent? I just don't know. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, I I threw out Zizek, (laughs) and he's not part of the IDW for anyone who's want to, like, shaking their heads at me or whatever, but... You want to know who these people are, and it's like, I think it's a really muddy water situation right now. The people who are in the in-group or whatever, when they talk, sometimes you're like, what are you saying? You know, like, it's it's all, also the whole psychology thing, and we can't replicate our studies, and there's like branches of academia, as which it, we're saying is sort of the central housing you know, warehouse repository for intellectual stuff and what's acceptable and what's not or whatever. But even there, it's getting all must, you know, messed up. So maybe the window is just falling apart and there's no way to know where anyone is exactly because things are shifting all the time. Period. Sorry, I'm done. This, the four criteria that I was putting out before your question were what I think are the answers to your question. What, mm-hmm. if the, why are these people marginal? feel bad asking, can you go over those four things again? <laughs> Humor, taboo, vocation, radicalism. Well, that's what I mean, is that a lot of these people, people choose, pick and choose what they use now in some ways. It's, I think things are all messed up. So you're saying, well, you can throw out all these names of people now and I'm aware of them and Jordan Peterson. The trick is it's easy to be outside the norm, but to be outside the norm in the right way, to still have something to say that's respectable and interesting and informed. So one way to be out there is to oh recently we watched that flat earth documentary. Oh yeah, I right. love that. So, show. and I thought that was a pretty interesting epistemic exemplar. And 
what was it called? Uh, bending the curve or something? No, it was behind, behind the, curve. the curve. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Ah, such a good... If you, flattening the... Yeah, flatten the flatten curve. The curve. It's a, make the earth flat if it wasn't before. It is now. It's on, it was on it's Netflix. It's easy to say, yeah. to say heretical things. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Everybody go check it out if you want to check it. It's pretty good. I like it. It's easy to, to say radical stuff, but if you... One of the things that those people do is literally set up an antagonistic situation between them and the entirety of quote-unquote science. Mm-hmm. It's like us versus science, and we need to take them down or whatever because they disagree with us. I think that's one way to indicate a marginal viewpoint or person that probably isn't worthy of respect. Yeah. For whatever flaws the central zeitgeist has, it's not total garbage. It's not like, we want to throw out all of science. It's useless. We Mm -hmm. hate it. These people might have some critiques or some holes to poke or some things they wish were added. You know, they seem to be aware of what is said by the scientists. Respect it, address it, etc. No, for sure. They're playing off Less so. Yeah, yeah. Flat earthers, less so. I mean, there is nothing in Alan Watts' language that I find, like, disagreeable. It's extraordinarily sober, in a way. Yeah. And then he says words that I like, like he talks about systems and stuff like that. I'm like, ooh, you got me with <laughs> systems. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. Like he- That's a big one for me, because I, I have so many bells and whistles and chimp activation set-off mechanisms, phrases, you know. So when anybody, if I can listen to an hour of them talk or read... 100 pages of their writing and not not have my chimp a jangling that's a good sign right yeah for sure or at least they're not making you laugh out loud at them you know <laughs> like yeah. to an extent the flat earther type people mm-hmm. there's some there's some classic moments in that little uh uh video anyway don't take my word for it i could be a mental patient recently released from an institution so since Watts is coming from the direction of spirituality slash religion slash self-help almost. Mm -hmm. I think that many, to my perception, might have a tendency to say, oh, Alan Watts, he's kind of like Eckhart Tolle. I see exactly what everybody else sees. But I feel or sense something that is deeper than the physicality and that is hard to put into words. Or even Deepak Chopra. And all you have to do is understand the principles of science and understand that you have within you the resources to intuitively grasp this mystery. Or some of these people. More so than like, wait, you're going to talk about him on a podcast that talks about Wittgenstein and Rorty and you know he he doesn't belong there he belongs with that Cartoli well no I and that's part of I guess if there's an argument or something that I have it's Watts belongs in the in group marginal yes but not outside the circle like I mean I don't I want nothing to do with Tolly and Chopra and any and you know yeah no for sure um, although there is that. Mingling, that commingling of of the the Watts group, 
that we're talking about here with the Chopras. I mean, I'm not saying Watts and Chopra got together, but certainly another member of this margin-haunting enterprise um, that we'll talk about the next time, um, Rupert Sheldrake, he certainly has mingled with uh, Deepak. Hello, I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I've found myself that sometimes when I look at people and they turn around, they look straight at me. So, I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting thing because in some ways it's like while they're not accepted into the mainstream, some or some of them turn in their own direction, but some turn towards the Chopras, the Tollies, the, you know, because they're the only people who want to, like, listen to them. Watts. Let's talk about Watts. <laughs> <laughs> so the super brief, like, just, you know, uh, Wikipedia level biographical details. Uh, he was born in 1915, died in 1973. Pretty young. Apparently, they say, and another thing that I like about these people is that he was mostly autodidactic in his education. I mean, he had some... I mean, he was born to apparently a tire salesman and a homemaker, it says. Yeah. So just a pretty basic, poor, uh, unconnected upbringing. Yeah, inauspicious beginnings. And then they talk about this, where he sort of made it famous, right? Is when he was at the radio station at Berkeley and Mm -hmm. had... A, sh- a show and when i was reading about that i was like holy shit he was podcasting <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah it was right. this it wasn't paid it was just this volunteer thing he's like i can get behind a mic and broadcast some thoughts hmm. to the people in my area i'm like he was an early goddamn podcaster got in before there was a hundred million dollars in value for him sorry yeah geez you remember the old days when we used to make fun of joe rogan now, he's a hundred millionaire. It made me think, like, do you imagine how long it takes to make a hundred million dollars? To have a hundred million dollars to invest in something that's bullshit? Do, do, Podcasting do, do. news! Joe Spotify. Joe Spotify. Anyway, who gives a shit? Podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And then I liked this part where they said that he engaged in this lifestyle at the Druid heights or whatever where they live in shared bohemian poverty (laughs) and just mate you know everybody that we garden our own food and we carpenter our own dwellings and we just and i'm like yeah that's pretty much what america is nowadays minus the bohemianism exactly we're all just clunking along in our shared poverty (laughs) uh, fuck drinking our poor man's revenge and whining about what the man has done to us and god yep. damn god fucking damn oh. and he sort of apparently but then he was this sort of bridge figure between religion and science or between this and that that he was constructing viewpoints that attempted to unify and appeal to both sides of various divides Okay. Which, if you can pull it off, is a laudable enough goal, right? It's interesting. He was, uh, he was a as could be heard at the beginning of this episode. He was a he had fantastic speaker. You know, he just had a great, almost musicality. However, I do detect the the dramatic pause at times in his speaking. 
and I I know that, and I know we've done a lot of tangents and off-roading here, but like, whenever I hear it now, all I ever fucking think about is this goddamn stupid Stan Harris. For a few years there, I was someone who had a lot of ideas and didn't have anything to do with them. With his like extra long pauses of like, do you get it, dumbass? You know, that whole thing. Whereas with fucking <laughs> Alan Watts, it wasn't intended to be that way. It was more of a, you know, let it sink in. But anyway, Harris always has those eyes where he's just like, you know, like, oh, come on. Can't believe I have to speak to you idiots. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Everybody's here tonight. <laughs> Everybody from Joe Rogan to Jordan Peterson to Sam Harris. We all showed up. <laughs> To the Alan Watts party. Yeah, well, there you go. Of course, why wouldn't we, right? The original Margin Haunter. No, the original Margin Haunter, like you brought up another week, is probably Socrates. But mm. an old school Margin Haunter. Yeah, there you go. Was evoked by... So let's get... Okay, I want to get into some of the stuff where... What are these ideas that Watts has that are so radical and, gonna, and taboo and they're going to push him out to the fringes? One of them is that he is explicitly, repeatedly, anti-self-improvement, anti-quote-unquote virtue, and completely cultural relativist morality ethics. Yep. Which I think is itself one of the major... He ticks off most of the major ones. So if you are non-dogmatic... That's a major one. If you don't believe in m explicit, strict father morality of some stripe or another, you're out on the outs. And if you are anti-capitalist. And he does all of those in this one particular... I think it's a collection of different lectures, but was organized by someone into this collection called The Essential Alan Watts track one of which is called mind mm -hmm. over mind that's where we're going to get the audio clips that i will soon be playing and he ticks off all of those and i was like who else does those three things and what and he reminded me of somebody oh yeah oh good old fred nitch nietzsche <laughs> and when in this one watts was talking about beware virtue and those who say they want to improve you or they want you to improve yourself. And I was like, oh, that's a total, that's a chapter title in Nietzsche's Twilight of the Idols, where he writes about the quote-unquote <laughs> improvers of mankind. One knows my demand of philosophers that they place themselves beyond good and evil, that there are no moral facts whatever. Moral judgment never contains anything but nonsense, etc. <laughs> so, like, and that's uh, what Nietzsche makes of these moralists and these improve, you know, uh, whether it's coming from religion or coming from Aristotle, whoever's like, you need to figure out how to be a better version of you or a better version of man mm -hmm. itself, of the category you're supposed to be a member of. I'm going to play a little bit of this Watts on that topic, and then we can talk about that. So therefore, beware of virtue. Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, said, the highest virtue 
is not virtue and therefore really is virtue. But inferior virtue cannot let go of being virtuous and therefore is not virtue. Translated uh, in more of a periphrastic way, the highest virtue is not conscious of itself as virtue and therefore really is virtue. Lower virtue is so self-conscious that it's not virtue. In other words, when you breathe, you don't congratulate yourself on being virtuous. But breathing is a great virtue. It's living. When you come out with beautiful eyes, blue or brown or green as the case may be, you don't congratulate yourself for having grown one of the most fabulous jewels on earth. So it's just eyes. And you don't account it a virtue. To see, to entertain the miracles of color and form. You say, oh, that's just... But that's real virtue. Virtue in the sense, the old sense of the word, a strength, is when we talk about the healing virtue of a plant. That's real virtue. But the other virtues are stuck on. They're ersatz, they're imitation virtues. And they usually create trouble. Because more diabolical things are done in the name of righteousness. And be assured that everybody of whatever nationality or political frame of mind or religion always goes to war with a sense of complete rightness. The other side is the devil. So there's that thing about, you know, everybody who's going to war and doing what they want is, thinks they're right to do so. Hmm? And then hmm? I'll add... We could have a plague of virtuous people. <laughs> do you realize that? Any animal considered in itself is virtuous does its thing, but in crowds they're awful. Like a cr crowd of ants or locusts on the rampage. They're all perfectly good animals, but it's just too much. I could imagine a perfectly pestiferous mass of a million saints. So, uh, yeah, I really like that concept, you know, that every <laughs> animal or every type or whatever is just fine if you've got one grasshopper, but you get too many... And then there's a plague. And so the same for the conquistadors of the Inquisition, right? Mm. If you've got too many people that are all acting in the will of God and all think that they're so virtuous and perfect, they'll be willing to do anything. <laughs> yeah, for sure. They'll be willing to eat each other. Like the locusts do when the grasshoppers become too many and they morph into a locust and... The whole reason why they keep moving is because if they don't, the ones behind them will eat their legs off or whatever. Uh, anyway, as the analogy would continue on, yeah, I think uh, they don't have someone else to eat. Like the conquistadors don't have the poor Native Americans, then they'll they'll go against each other, right? If they don't have an other. Uh, he talks a lot about do-gooders and how do-gooders are trouble or whatever. And I just love that. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, yep. God damn, they're trouble because they have something to uphold, you know? 
and they do it a lot together, then it's all of a sudden, you know, I know this is going to sound controversial, but it's like clapping for the healthcare professionals or whatever. <clears throat> it's like, a, you know, you know they, what else are they able to be made to do? You know, it's that kind of thing, like in the name of something that's right, you know, that kind of thing. It just kind of, that's what it's off-putting about it is that everybody just like falls in line. Yep. And if we, I mean, going to be controversial. Well, we're, that's what we're here for. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, I think that's super strongly playing itself out right now with the response, the social response to the coronavirus epidemic mm-hmm. experience episode with the slogan that one sees everywhere nowadays, stay home, save lives. And all of the people who get to recline on their American rear ends and by doing so, pat themselves on the back and say, I am a hero. (laughs) I am quite literally the fireman running into the towers on 9-11. I am a life-saving hero by (laughs) watching some more Netflix. And how convenient and perfect is it for the ruling class to be able to use that rhetorical trick to get what they want, get people to do what they want. Oh, you're all heroes if you just do this. And the self-righteousness with which these people present themselves, and and I'm just thinking... First of all, you're ignorant of what science even says. And second of all, you're selective about where you care about science and where you don't. And, you know, But they are happy to tell you exactly how you ought to behave right now. How they're going to behave, why it makes them virtuous, and how you must also. So it makes me think, you know, okay, stay home, stay safe. The reason behind that is, you know, go ahead and make sure that you don't go out and get coronavirus because that if a whole bunch of people get it, then they, you know, we're going to not have enough ICU beds and all that business. We don't have enough PPE and all that kind of stuff. And then now that you're in your house and people are starting to go, eh, can we go out now? Cause you know, we flattened the curve or whatever it was. Then it becomes, well, let's just stay until we find a cure, you know, or whatever. Like it just, it can kind of like move along and, you know, you know, and then, you know, if I don't know how long that can last, they might have to get a little more creative than just, you know, you know, telling you to feel like you're a hero, you know, telling you that you are a hero if you stay home or whatever, just like the nine 11 first responders. But anyway, it's just, kind of that sort of seems like the next thing that seemed to be going on in the news was just you know of course i don't think that's happening though i think people are opening up a little bit more states anyway now we can all be do-gooders but it, right they're the whole shifting the goalpost thing yeah shifting the goalposts we're instituting the lockdowns to flatten the curve uh not when do you hear that anymore it's no longer about that now it's about making zero deaths or something insane that's not going to happen. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I Nietzsche, Watts, and apparently the two of us, at least I, seem to totally be on board with this concept of 
Virtue is actively dangerous and negative because no one has sufficient grounds to claim to know what is virtuous or if what they're doing is succeeding. But claims of virtue can undergird and motivate the most quote-unquote evil or atrocious or selfish or totalitarian every it can motivate all human behavior if you can only say well god told me to do it or some version thereof yeah it's the right thing to do who you know people will do anything if they can follow it up with well it was the right thing to do or you know it's and that's dangerous this is the high moral ground this is the high ground for morality he mentions yeah. the spanish inquisition i think mm -hmm. particularly with these this this topic on virtue and of course there's the whole virtue signaling thing in social media and probably in person but certainly it gets recorded in social media but I, for me i in my opinion that is violating one of the top five at least taboos of central western civilization we are supposed to pursue the virtue right and that which is right we're that's what we should want to do mm -hmm. yeah we're supposed to i mean there's lots of explanations for why virtue might be this thing in culture but uh you know collectively I think, but individually, it's uh, it can be very um, painful. I think because there's always the threat of uh, excommunication, of exile. Right? That's the that's the threat. So if you don't toe the line, you can be kicked out. And we're social creatures. Not everyone is well suited to being on their own, or at least at the start, they may not know how to learn how to be on their own. You know, I mean, just look at all the people who are in solitary confinement. Of course, that's a sort of a different environment. It's one thing to be alone in the forest <laughs> than it is to be alone in a dark cell where you can't see anything. But in general, you know. Yep. So that's the threat of virtue, I suppose, is that you, if you do not join us, you know, then you will be excommunicated i think that's the extreme to which we take it in our heads you know just in general just even in like the school cliques you know it's like oh if i don't fall in line with this clique then i won't be able to really be part of it or whatever and even if i do try and fall in line they may pick on me still just to kind of initiate me into the group or whatever you know uh, i don't know there's a lot of fear I think I, that's what I, whenever I, listening to him, I think about the root of a lot of it just being fear, just like a crazy fear too. Yeah, fear and, and I don't know if this is an and as though they're different things or if what I'm about to say is a subset included in fear. But I think it's a, this is an aspect of that most deeply rooted human tendency to avoid responsibility for your own choices and behaviors if you can 
offload it on, yeah. well, somebody told me what's right or somebody told me what's in fashion in like the click example. or You know, this is how you don't have to face the bevy of choices available to you and select amongst them and it's your fault what happens because well i just did it because sue told me that's what was cool you know or i just did it because my priest told me not doing so was sinful or what you know everybody wants to offload responsibility to society yeah there's the cliched parental statement that gets bandied about i'm sure enough but would you jump off a cliff if they told you to, you know like that kind of thing you know or well i'm not bobby's mother you know if he stays up at night you know that whatever it is you know that but mm-hmm. bobby gets to do i don't you know like it's that uh yeah we don't decide when to open up the virus decides <laughs> well i mean so the responsibility thing I don't get a lot of that from Alan Watts, though. I mean, I, I I see him leveling a heavy critique, and you and I kind of going off about responsibility. Well, what uh, do you think? Maybe, maybe. Let's see if this next nice. clip <laughs> has anything more to say about that. Okay. You say, well, I ought to be honest. That's, that's the beginning of, oh, so many lies you can't imagine. It's like when I hear a lot said about love, the big love thing on the way. Everybody's got to love everybody. But he sings songs about love. Do you know what I do? I buy a gun and bar my door. Because I know there's a storm of hypocrisy brewing. That's supposing we can't do anything to change ourselves. Now, that is the, the worst thing an American audience can hear. There's no way of improving yourself. Because every kind of culture in this country is dedicated to self-improvement. Just take jogging, that deplorable practice. It's a very nice thing to run and to go dancing across the hills uh, at a fast speed. But these joggers are chunk, 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 chunk shaking their bones and rattling their brains, running on their heels. And because there's a grimness about it, it's determinately good for you. See? Why do you go to school? There's only one reason for going to school. And that is that somebody's got something here, whether it's a professor or a library, that you want to find out. But the whole point of coming to school is that you're interested in something. You don't come to improve yourself. But the trouble is that the schools got the wrong idea. They gave people honors for learning. And the reward for studying French should be the ability to speak French and enjoy reading French and having fun with French people. But when you get a degree for it, then the degree becomes the point. It's instructive to go to a a professional professor's meeting. In my field, which is philosophy, you go to a congress of philosophers and you'll find when they all get together in the bar or in the restaurant and somebody's room, 
the one thing they don't talk about is philosophy. <laughs> it is very bad form indeed to show interest in philosophy among your colleagues. The same is exactly true in clergy gatherings. They don't talk about religion. What they both talk about is politics, church politics and academic politics, because it's bad form to be brilliant on a faculty, because it outclasses your colleagues. Therefore, faculty people tend to cultivate a studied mediocrity. We start in that one with him going after honesty and love <laughs> and virtue. And it's like, okay, let, that's this is so fun and great. Like, let's, how many taboos can we violate at the same time? Um, so that's part of why I was thinking that was relevant to what you were just saying. Be honest is an example, and a, there's a lot, and I'm not saying I'm anti-honesty either, but. I'm anti-dogmatism. And if you're dogmatic, even about virtues, that is to be avoided, I think. Well, I know exactly what I have to do here. I have to tell the truth. Because honesty is the best policy. Or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or, well, I need to go around and act from love. Because love is the, the foundation of all goodness. And I need to do that which... And... Watts's response literally to that was, I reach for my gun or whatever. Because <laughs> here comes a bunch of hypocrisy. And I think there's a lot to that. That when people engage from a standpoint of these virtues, of these institutions that they set aside, they put on the pedestal, and they say... You know, thou shalt be honest or whatever. And you can come up with many examples from our daily lives when you're like, yeah, well, what about if your three-year-old says, do you think my, my dress is pretty or whatever? And obviously, we don't, we don't think that. But, you know, everybody lies all the time, Is you know. And then towards the end of that clip, we get into kind of the next topic, which is how I think Watts is kind of the philosopher of the dawdler. But while we're on this, do you want to talk more about it? Well, I'm just still, um, we, 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 I, I just don't know where it went with the responsibility thing. I'm saying that using these universals as behavior guides is avoidance of taking responsibility for your own speech acts, etc. In the like in the daughter dress case or whatever. And I think that Watts agrees with that because of what he was willing to say right there, like even going after things like honesty and love. Those can be used or misused, perhaps, if we want to take an evaluative term and apply it to that as ways to avoid being responsible for your behavior. Well, I was just being honest. Is a dodge. Yeah, no, I get what, what you're right? saying. Yeah, no, for sure. I just wonder if that's what he meant by it. But. Okay, do you have an alternative interpretation or or not really, but. 
I figured that a, a part of this was, to an extent, don't let people hold shit over your head because they don't have anything over you, you know? They can't use love and virtue and honesty because the context is important, you know? And that's kind of what I always, that's what I tend to get out of something like that is, is you know, no one's better than you. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, it's, and that's what they're using. They're, it seems to me like all of this virtue discussion, it's about leverage and social settings, you know, and it could be hierarchical where you have the people in power and they're trying to leverage people to do what they want them to do. Or it could just be something that just naturally kind of erupts or emerges in social settings between people to kind of keep everybody in line or whatever. Because if someone's not doing, you know, uh, the thing that you want them to do, then you can't trust them, right? And it's just a weird place to be if you're trying to get something done as a group or whatever, um, because you fear there's not going to be enough food. <laughs> you know, like everybody pick up the spear and hunt. If you don't, the gods will punish you or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is you need to use as leverage. And he's, I thought he was just sort of throwing a, a wrench in that whole thing. Just being like, it's all bullshit. They're trying to leverage something against you. Don't let them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, I agree that he probably would think and say those things also. <laughs> and yeah, this could be just me importing my own stuff into what he was saying more than it is really there. Well, the reason why uh, I yeah. say that is because yeah. the shit that I was reading, I wouldn't say that they were like the best sources. I have no idea. But there was a hinting that, you know he might have incorporated this self-improvement as hogwash into his own life and just behaved that way and didn't take however we were. I mean, we haven't defined what responsibility is supposed to be, but like he wouldn't have been very responsible in his behaviors towards, you know, uh, the ones who were close to him, you know, and so that's that's as I understand it that he was he was not a great uh, husband, you know, and things like that, you know, and he had lots of affairs, and it tended to be rolling one, you know, a woman he was having an affair on with his first wife became his second wife, and then it's you know it's just kind of like when people would confront him on things like his affairs or his alcohol uh, abuse or whatever it was, he'd say, it's just the way I am. You know, it's because that's another part I thought of the non-self-improvement was that then you're fine just the way you are. Don't let anyone tell you you're not. You're fine. But there's also really nothing you can do to really change that. You were born with these blue eyes, these beautiful jewels. It's not a virtue you can laud over anyone. That's all I was thinking. You know, maybe it's in his own life has been incorporated. And so this responsibility thing, that's where I was coming from, was I was thinking of the little things that I had read. I was like, well, what if <laughs> that's what if he what if you're t you, Harlan, take it further than Watts does? 
which I prefer. I like that. I, I like the responsibility thing myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could be wrong, but that's just my general understanding. We can perhaps circle back to this when we get to the second half and we talk about the, you know, the first part. And you're like, oh, we're only half done. <laughs> Fucking sit down. You got nowhere to go. If you leave the house, they're going to arrest you anyways. You hear you're that, in people? Portland. You, you fucking sit down. You can't leave the house. Stay there. And we were talking about this lecture first, and then later we're going to talk about the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. And we'll talk about what Watts, at least in this hyper-intellectualized segment of life, while he's writing this book, what he thinks okay. each of us is, and maybe that'll have some bearing yeah, on the yeah. responsibility thing. Cool. And then... My other comment about that is I know almost nothing about Alan Watts personally or like I didn't even know the story about the affairs and whatever and I I don't I don't know. I you in general seem more interested in the person. And I typically am more interested in the person's presentations of the ideas or whatever. Well, yeah, and I, I don't know much. I, about and that. in a way, that's that's I think the usual doddler's approach is the ideas, and who fucking cares mm. about the people? But these people are not in the mainstream, and so that's why I'm like, okay, what do we have available to us to be able to evaluate? You know why they're on the margins? Because everything, you know. They everything checks off, you know, and so that's where I start to ask. Okay, that's why haunting the margins is sort of a little more of a greater emphasis on the person, in my thinking, because it's like one of the ways you can evaluate why maybe they became more of a margin hunter, haunter, <laughs> because maybe they, <laughs> maybe because some of them you could literally, I think, make an argument that they didn't care to be in the mainstream, like they they enjoyed being at the margins and it was more fun or whatever you know what i mean like and for others it's like the next one we'll do with rupert sheldrick i think he kind of wants to be in the center you know and so there's they have different motivations from the tiny amount that i know about watts wiki level stuff he seems to be the opposite of she if sheldrick wants to be in the center i think watts wants to be on the margins he had a gig as an adjunct or whatever at Harvard for a while. Yeah. Kind of like turned it down, right? Or what? Yeah. yeah. He, seemed he seems against the whole, you know, status quo. Because I think yeah. he's come to the conclusion or learned that the status quo is not helping. It's not, and he doesn't want to be part of that. Right. He was part of the Episcopalian Church. And while there may have been some personal reasons why that became an issue or why he he no longer was part of it it may have also been just his philosophy his view of things and they were just like this isn't working man like we are episcopalians we do our episcopalian shit and you're all about buddhism and stuff <laughs> you know like you know it's and so he just wasn't and so i i mean i don't know if he i, I would love to read his autobiography and his biography uh but I, I kind of wonder if he really did really suffer much from that anyway. You know, autodidact, you know, he strikes me as somebody who's just doing fine on his own. You know, just, especially when you hear him. 
talk. It's like, this doesn't sound like a man who's been like uber troubled, you know, by rejection or, you know what I mean? Like he just, he does his thing sort of in a way, very similar to raw, you know, just, I'm going to do my thing. And are you, uh, the second part is what I'm saying. This is where it's approaching what I think that he's, uh, philosophizing the dawdle here. Cool. When he talks about, when he compares frolicking across the meadow to jogging, right? <laughs> to me, jogging is the hustle. It is, in his terms, it has been determined that this is quote-unquote good for me, and I shall do it. I'm going to get up every morning at 6 o'clock, and I'm going to run five miles, you know, because I'm a hustler, and this is what's good. And Watts's version is, well, I'm not anti-running. Running's fine. I'll run across the field of wildflowers with you <laughs> but it's not Chin this splints. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, part of it i think is an emphasis on like do it for its own sake versus do it for the sake of some predetermined virtuosic goal or something and then he goes from that into the whole schooling thing where wouldn't it be nice if more people had the purpose of going to school to get educated instead of to get a degree, mm-hmm. to get the piece of paper. Those are the sort of hustler goals. I need to become accredited by my society so that I can show someone else in a position of power that I have achieved this degree. He's like, well, no, you want to learn, you want to go to school for French so that you can speak French fluently, enjoy French literature, talk to French people, have a good time. Yeah. You should just want to learn French. You shouldn't want to get a certificate that says, I am a French speaker, or like, I have graduated from this institution. Right, and that's totally, I can totally see how, in that summation, how that becomes this great source of frustration and anxiety and despair in people because they're like, well, I've got to go be a professor of French at the whatever university and there's only so many jobs and it's like, oh, why did I do this? I wasted my life learning French. And someone like Alan Watts might be like, but did you not, why did you do it then? Like, did you not enjoy it? Did you not want to do it at one point? Why is it you've lost your way? You know, it wasn't for the goal of becoming a tenured professor in French or whatever. You know, I had to settle for being an interpreter at the UN or whatever, <laughs> or translator. I don't know, something like that. Doing business such as um, manufacturing uh, clothes is a very good thing to do. I could conceive that it would be extremely enjoyable, something one could be very proud of, to make good clothes. Of course, you need to sell them because you need to eat. But to make clothes to make money... raises another question because then your interest is not in making clothes it's in making money and then you're going to cheat on the clothes so then we loop in the anti-capitalism into the prefer the dawdling to the hustling yeah we just want it it seems as though we'd probably be better at achieving the relevant goals if we valued and pursued their fruition rather than oh i make clothes 
to make money. Like, if you just wanted to make good clothes... And so then you get sweatshops, right? And you get Phil Knight, and you get all the jobs in Portland. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's not about making clothes, it's about making money. And then almost everything in our society becomes in that machine. It's not about doing the thing, it's about making money from the thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes me think about, um, <clears throat> the idea that, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how perfectly aligned it all is, but this, this notion that at one time there were research and development labs because, you know, businesses, you know, they couldn't monopolize or merge companies or acquire other companies at one time in say the United States. <clears throat> so they had to develop their own ideas and stuff like that. And so they were there was this boon for creative thinking and trying to work things out. Um and there was a place, I guess, in that sense for people who went and you know, desired education and whatnot. But the structure behind the society was allowing that to happen, you know. It's allowing people to kind of go, oh, you know, the Shannon, or what's his name? God damn it, why can't I think of his name? Uh, Claude. Yeah, Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon. You know, his work um, likely couldn't have happened if it weren't for, you know, healthy research and development uh, enterprises and sort of the, you know, antitrust laws and things like that that were going into place. And so people couldn't offload the the work onto some other little company that was doing it or whatever because they just bought them or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, And there was a lot more of a prospering of new ideas and things like that. I was reading about this one guy who used to work for the military I don't know if he always did, but they were trying to like, he, at one point the military was like, or the Navy or whoever, they were like, all right, you've got to like justify your existence. Cause all you do is screw around in the lab and you just have fun and you're just like a fucking scientist who just, you know, we don't even know what you care about or whatever. So this guy came up with a, somehow he was able to marry the idea of trying to figure out how chaotic systems can synchronize <laughs> by trying to see how that would work in like a, a cryptic messaging or whatever uh, so that you could mask the actual message underneath. But it was this real like authentic, like intellectual problem that he was trying to solve. And he like justified it by saying like, yeah, we can like talk to each other and the Germans won't ever, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, that was all of course, kind of accidental, not, not, not really, the R and D thing, but it, it was definitely there to sort of help support the notion that you can't just go around. I mean, there are different motivations for why they didn't want people merging and acquiring different companies and stuff like that. But it's just happened to be a nice experiment in what I think maybe Watts is talking about to an extent, which is that when you pursue things just to pursue them for the love of it or whatever, it just seems like a lot more 
I don't know the word I can't uh, progress is the word I'm thinking, but I mean, not it's the word that's coming up, but you make a lot more progress or headway, you know, you develop things a lot more and you, you know, not only do you learn very much, you know, a whole lot about them, but then you actually see what the envelope is and you start to push it. But we can't do that when the whole point of the whole game is to make money, you know, and then all yep. of a sudden everybody, well, you don't do that. We'll get this, this, we bought this person. He does the statistics. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, it's like everybody's bought and sold and they are supposed to perform. Uh, it's part of the mythos of capitalism that it encourages innovation, right? And remembering back all the way to episode zero. Oh, shit. And, and comparing the dawdle to the hustle and whatnot. I'm not at all convinced yet that... Because capitalism is a subtype of, the, of hustling, and it's this you know, having an external measurement stick and goal that you know what you're worth because you know how many dollars you have, and you want to have dollars because they allow you to accumulate uh, social status and hedonistic fulfillment power and exert power over others and you know all these other, you get all these goodies if you just get the bucks but i don't see it yeah i don't know that capitalism encourages innovation or at least not of an interesting kind it's not radical enough it's yeah, you can come up with a better widget than the other guy's widget, but you aren't going to be inspired or motivated to come up with something entirely new. And this is another thing that Watts talks about in that lecture, how the genius is always, and by definition, misunderstood and incomprehensible because they're coming up with something new. Well, when Einstein first came up with relativity or whatever as the, you know, fulfilling his capitalist drudgery as a patent clerk. copy edit, uh, a patent clerk. Yeah. What it, that he comes up with this thing and people are like, what, what? <laughs> I don't get it. And it takes a long time. A lot of, but he wasn't paid to come up with relativity. He does that in his dot all the time. Oh, for sure. No, no, for sure. But I, one of the things that I think is interesting or perhaps remarkable of the human spirit is that when, like, all of these, like, the, so the whole thing about the R&D thing, and then also the, I don't remember the name of the, um, the building at MIT, but it was the, it was the same place where uh, the linguistics department was at, or at least the branch that Chomsky was kind of leading or whatever, but a whole bunch of different you know, physics and departments and or wings or branches or whatever of it were going on. And it was just this like temporary crap-ass building where they built this new one or whatever. But what ended up happening was people ended up just staying in this space. And it's kind of like when you keep the capitalistic type of you know, uh, social restraints at bay, then it's amazing how quickly the, you know, the weeds blossom, you know, how everything just kind of comes right back as if almost that was the natural state was the, you know, 
like innovation, innovate, innovate, just like screw around, screw around, just constantly, you know, screw around. And so that building ended up creating, generating a bunch of Nobel laureates and all that kind of stuff or Nobel prize winners and stuff because there really wasn't any rules. Like apparently some people would just like for one experiment, I'm sure I've mentioned this to you in passing before, but somebody needed more space for their laser or whatever. So they just literally cut a hole in the floor and they're just like, right. Like this, you know, thing came to thud in another department's like lounge or what. <laughs> like, sorry, but I need more. Space. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And so they were just allowed to kind of, they had elbow room. They could kind of stretch out. But when the whole point is just money and just, you know, whatever the, innovation becomes just a buzzword and everybody's basically making the same thing everybody else is and it just comes down to marketing and advertising and all that kind of crap anyway gotten away from alan a little bit here but basically that's kind of what i was thinking it's just you give it a little bit of space and it might just explode yeah us dawdlers need to pursue our projects in an environment of shared bohemian poverty (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> and cut holes in the floor slash ceiling. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, if the UBI is like two thousand dollars a month, I could do that. I wouldn't ask for more. If I wanted to go someplace, I would just save it, and I would cut back on certain things. That you know what I mean? Like that's how I would go to whatever, uh, wherever it was that I was thinking would be important to go to with my family. And they would love to go where I want to go. Anyway. Let's see if this part has something to do with the responsibility. So here's the situation, you see. There is no... The, the, the whole idea of self-improvement is a, uh, is a will-o'-the-wisp and a hoax. That's not what it's about. Let's begin where we are. What happens if you know... If you know beyond any shadow of doubt that there is nothing you can do to be better. Well, it's kind of a relief, isn't it? Now, you say, well, now what will I do? (laughs) See, there's a little fidget comes up. Because we're so used to um, (laughs) making things better leave the world a better place than when you found it sort of thing. I want to be of service to other people and all these dreadfully hazy ideas. And uh, so we think there's that little itch still. But supposing instead of that, seeing that there isn't really anything we can do to improve ourselves or to improve the world, if we realize that that is so, it gives us a breather in the course of which we may simply watch what is going on. Watch what happens. I guess maybe that almost perfectly encapsulates what you were trying to say, that his position is, right? So he sets up the problematic, all right, if we take away the improvers of mankind and your job is no longer do what you ought to do, but instead 
exercise your radical freedom, Sartre, etc. And <laughs> it's up to you. Like, go forth and do now. And that's where I'm saying this whole responsibility thing existentially weighs down upon us. But Watts is saying instead, just watch it or what, like, just let it happen or something. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I. Is that kind of what you were saying the difference is? Yeah. Like, I, I, I just kind of get the sense that there is a sort of, I don't know, to an extent, a sort of, a somewhat hedonistic conclusion. And, you know, it's funny. I don't think that's the only place one needs to take what he has to say. I just, because we were talking about capitalism, and I'm like, talk about a hedonistic conclusion. But I just, I that's sort of, I guess, the, the, the thought that I was having. But again, I don't want to, like, act like I'm a fucking, read all of the Watts books and did it, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. I just, the, my impression. So could we look at things in that way? without, as it were, fixing labels and names and gradations and judgments on everything. But watch what happens. Watch what we do. Now, you see, if you do that, you do at least give yourself a chance. And it may be that when you are in this way freed from busybodiness and being out to improve everything, that your own nature will begin to take care of itself because you're not getting in the way of yourself all the time. You will begin to find out that the great things that you do are really happenings. For example, no great genius can explain how he does it. Yes, he says, I have learned a technique to express myself. Because I had something in me that had to come out, I had to know how to give it out. Anyways, yeah. When he talked about that part, it reminded me of the way David Lynch talks about his art. He will often get asked questions about the social impact of something or about some, oh, yeah, how does this, uh, how does the Mulholland Drive be a commentary about uh, female empowerment in America or whatever. And almost invariably, his answer to those types of questions will be, uh, no, I can't talk to you about that at all. I That's not what it was about. I don't know. That's not what I'm doing. <laughs> right. All I'm doing is I get an idea and I'm just trying to express that idea to... Like, I'm trying to stay true to that idea, and uh, that's how I make my films. I just, I get an idea in, uh, he makes an analogy with fishing. I go into my transcendental meditation, or whatever the fuck he's into, and I'll go down into this sea of unbounded consciousness, and, and once in a while I'll catch a fish, and that'll be my idea, and then I'll just need to put the fish in the percolator, and boom, then I can make something. And ideas uh, come to us. We don't um, really create an idea. We just catch them, like fish. 
Um, no chef ever takes credit uh, for making the fish. It's just preparing the fish. So you get an idea and it is like a seed. And that to me sounds like what Watts was saying there about geniuses, how they they get the uh, whatever it is, inspiration, epiphanies, and they can work through it, but there's no way to teach it. It has to happen. Yeah. You have to not pursue and and let certain things happen and then you know i don't know yeah, it makes sense to me uh you can't bottle it but i mean i have my thoughts about why that would potentially be but i mean it just you want to share one of those sure. thoughts? <laughs> i mean like just my thinking is that it's the confluence of a whole bunch of different factors that come into play have to do with t- someone's development that has to do with the context that they lived in at the time, has to do with perhaps something that they, you know, that, that you know, some batteries included, some stuff that's baked in the cake. It's just a whole mess of shit, and it's really hard to recreate that because there's so many moving pieces. I think it that's one very blah, kind of boring explanation of it, but I wouldn't, I mean, that that seems as good as any as far as I'm concerned. It just happens because it's, it is what it is. Alan Watts may be an example of that, right? I mean, he just, dad was tire salesman or whatever the fuck, you know? And it's like, uh, who knows? You know, it's, uh, then later on in life, you get some opportunities to kind of relax and express yourself or, or not. The story of Einstein, you mentioned him earlier. I mean, it seems very much inauspicious beginnings as well. Just, yeah, he just happens to you know, go crazy when he holds a compass in his hand, you know, and he's just freaking out, you know, and it's like, why him and not another, you know, member of the family, you know, or, you know, and it's like, it just is. It's What you were just saying, since apparently tonight is like, everybody comes to the party. <laughs> yeah. That comment loops in the Santa Fe Institute crowd and the edge of chaos type stuff. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. That's that totally there's, there's so much going on that you can't predict what's going to happen. You can't explain where it's going to come from. You can't replicate it. And most of it is too crazy to count. But if you can get right on this edge, yep. right in this margin, <laughs> that's where the action happens. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think that's totally it. Um. There has to be some special circumstances in today's world, I think, to have that happen. But in the past, maybe there hasn't always had to be. Maybe the margin was a little bit wider or whatever I'm trying to say, you know. Oh, that reminds me. And again, you know, the coming to the party. Is Stuart Kaufman marginal or regular episode? That's so hard to say. He's definitely hard. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I kind of want to put him in a margin episode anyway. After Sheldrake. After Stuart Sheldrake. Kaufman. All right. Yeah, Stuart. <laughs> well, I, Stuart Kaufman, and I was saying this earlier, I kind of feel the same way about Stephen J. Gould. Stephen J. Gould and Stuart Kaufman's like this too. It just so happens that a lot of Kaufman's stuff, his NK model, works and people really oh we can do stuff with it and i sometimes wonder if that's just the you know for many of these people that's the difference i think it's gobbledygook could be right but i still think it's gobbledygook 
that, oh, yeah, we were just able to figure this thing out or whatever. Because, like, like uh, even though, for instance, punctuate equilibria was primarily a quote-unquote rediscovery of sorts by Niles Eldridge, Gould was the one who made it popular primarily through his writing. There's nothing more widely discussed among baseball fans than the disappearance of 400 hitting. And he buddied up with Niles Eldridge on the initial paper or whatever it was. But people really didn't like it, you know? But after a while, they were having a very difficult time getting it out of the way. It just kept coming back. And the same thing with, like, you know, uh, Kaufman. It's just you can't, you know, the personalities may not rub you the right way, but it's really hard to say, you know, fuck off. However, I would say the difference between, uh, as far as I can tell, Kaufman and Gould, I don't know how much humor they had. I mean, they could be funny, but were they, you know what I mean? How, it wasn't Robert Anton Wilson humor. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. So there's going to be degrees, I suppose, within that. Uh, and of course, in a way, both those two happen to be established compared to fucking, you know, Alan Watts wandering the lecture halls, right. just, you know, fucking going yeah. around, whatever. So, well, after, I mean, after these three, they were my paradigm trio of margin haunters Wilson, McKenna, and Watts. And, you know, but it'll evolve where it goes from here. So, mm-hmm. what's the what is the problem? What's the self? What's the idea? What is you know? Oh, you just have to watch and let it happen and whatever. What? And who is this that's supposedly doing <laughs> it? So I want to talk a little bit about one of Watts' books called the book on the taboo against knowing <laughs> who you are, and. On page X, on page nine of the preface, he writes, the thesis is, how convenient of him to do that for us, (laughs) the prevalent sensation of oneself as a separate ego enclosed in a bag of skin is a hallucination. And what he's going to get to throughout this book, I think, is the same thing Expressed by Joseph Campbell, who also was at this party already, in the title of one of his books, Thou Art That. This radical holism that each of us is nothing other, well, the objects that are called each of us, is not, it's even, okay, so step one is, You can't talk about an organism removed from its environment. You have to talk about organism within environment. That's kind of the Korzybskian step. And another reason to like Alan Watts is he was a general semantics practitioner. Uh, (laughs) But then Watts goes even further than that and is like, no, you can't even really, or you shouldn't, conceive of it ultimately, even on that level, but that it's just, it's all one thing. Not only is everything in everything else, everything is everything else. There is just the one. Which I think we talked about a little bit, at least during the Hofstetter one, who also 
I think, is an interesting like margin case. He falls a little bit on the other side of the line. He does. Not a margin haunter, but he's closer than many that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Anyways. All right. Watts. We suffer from a hallucination, a false and distorted sensation of our own existence that I myself is a separate center of feeling and action, bounded by the physical body, a center which, quote-unquote, confronts an, quote-unquote, external world, a universe both alien and strange, gives us a feeling of being a lonely and very temporary visitor in the universe. So, diagnosing this problem that most of us have nowadays, the alienation and individualism, loneliness, and existential angst. Mm-hmm. And his way out of it is going to be this whole, you know, oh, you know, don't worry about it, you already are that. The secret and profound view on life is... <laughs> dot 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 like already like oh who isn't perked up at that shit (laughs) (laughs) the secret and profound view on life is that our normal sensation of self is a hoax a temporary role that we are playing have been conned into playing with with tacit consent just as every hypnotized person is basically willing to be hypnotized the most strongly enforced of all known taboos is the taboo against knowing who or what you really are behind the mask of your apparently separate, independent, isolated ego. Oh, you tease. <laughs> he said he was going to give us the secret, but all he gave us was another restatement of the problem. <laughs> so why the book? Simply that it is a part of things taking their course that I write. As a human being, it is just my nature to enjoy and share philosophy. I do this in the same way that some birds are eagles, some doves. Some flowers, lilies, and some roses. Yeah. So that's back to the same lesson that he said during part of the clips from the audio about you don't congratulate yourself for growing an eye, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) E-Y-E. Yeah. It's just the way things develop. In that paragraph, he's saying, well, it's just the way it is. I write. (sighs) Nothing to it. You don't have to give me any fancy credit. It's just the way I am. I drink, smoke, <laughs> I have extramarital affairs, or whatever. I see. Okay, a way to avoid responsibility. Even perhaps he falls. Potentially. Awry a, a of that one. I don't know. But, you know, uh, that may not be the right interpretation. I just, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, where does this thing come from? We're under this big illusion. Why are we? What got... Quote, what governs what we choose to notice is whatever seems advantageous or disadvantageous for our survival, our social status, and the security of our ego. The pattern and the logic of all the notation symbols which we have learned from our culture. Hmm. So we've got the chimp, the human, and the ego right in there. The what we evolved to care about, what we have been convinced by the high school cliques yep. to care about, and uh, what the English language, what the what Zizek would call the big other, 
what Lacan calls the big other, you know, mm -hmm. has the symbolic order has convinced us is important. What is Watts talking about when he's like, you can't improve yourself? Change is in some sense an illusion, for we are always at the point where our future can take us. And this is another kind of Nietzschean refrain about where Nietzsche did it as the eternal return and stuff. Mm -hmm. Watts says, It is, I suppose, my basic metaphysical axiom, my leap of faith, that what happened once can always happen again. Hmm. I don't exactly know how to interpret that. We could maybe pause there to talk about it for a minute if you have any thoughts. I bother to highlight it because he does explicitly say, this is my basic axiom and my leap of faith. Yeah. What the heck does what happened once can always happen again mean? Well, I, I'm trying to fit my head into his framework of wholeness, you know, of you already are whatever it is, you know. Um, that cyclical nature or that things feeding into themselves, you know, it's a... It's like, you know, you, you aren't this raw individual nugget. You are part of the larger part. It's almost like um, fractal, right? It's like, you know, that. I guess that's kind of what it sounds like. He's trying to say that, that things are embedded in each other. Like everything's just sort of, I don't know, sort of fractal in that way. And that would be the repetitiveness, potentially. That what can happen will happen again. That the pattern, the structure, is all one and the same. No matter how you try and discretize it. I don't know if I'm in the right I spot. Of, yeah, but... I think... I don't either, but I sort of like it. <laughs> well... that So if you... if I mean, to take the fractal analogy, anything that happens in you or what we would call inside your skin bag psychologically such as your extreme grief at the death of your mother or something can be in some sense recapitulated right externally by a culture a society a planet a galaxy a universe whatever that sort of thing yeah so it's all one and the same it has elements of this sort of panpsychism shit but what i'm trying to say is that remember in the past we've made the distinction between you know every event is unique and that would go into the whole idea that you are a special thing and and that's the loneliness of you is that you know you're just an you know your own physical embodiment of whatever or you know things do repeat um and it's all just made basically the same, I don't know, I want to say the same equation, but it's the same patterning. As soon as you zoom in on the coastline, it's just more coastline and it's more coastline and you just kind of like, ah, crap, you know, it's always the same. It's all one and the same. So it doesn't matter where you are, you're everywhere. You know what I mean? It's it's that fractal geometry stuff, the mendel uh distribution. So it's like... It's. It, I wonder if he's just like that's his axiom. It's just the is fractal geometry. It's not 
uniqueness. Every little event is unique and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's the opposite of that. Everything is basically just the same thing. It's just, you know, you drill down, you find the same shit. You go up, you find the same shit. I don't know. I'm trying to understand it, but... I don't have it marked to go to it quickly, but I remember that he does talk about nominalism in here, which I take to be the position that Korzybski and me most of the time tend to share, where everything is entirely, every event is entirely unique. Right. And nominalism is traditionally opposed to what they call realism, which is defined in this sense as belief in universals or platonic forms. Uh-huh. And I guess that Watts is probably taking some position that's like, I, am, I want to be neither of those. Yeah. Because both of those are responses to a metaphysics that includes parts and wholes and whatever. And if I want to just be this radical holist, where there only is the, the iron block universe the one or, whatever, or whatever, yeah, that that would be a dichotomy that I don't have to pick a side. I'm just uh, jutes out of that system. Yeah. The fact is that because no one thing or feature of this universe is separable from the whole, the only real you is the whole. Is that is it one of those very short kind of cogito ergo sum arguments? Does that work? No one thing can be separated from the whole. That premise seems relatively okay. Yeah. I, I mean, depending on what the definition of separate means, <laughs> I'm probably willing to buy that we can't separate something from the universe. Right. It's it's, even if we say, okay, now it's in this empty room. It's the only thing in there. Go open the door. You'll see the thing. We still haven't t- taken it out of the universe. Right. Yeah. Okay, so if we grant that no thing is separable from the whole, then he just says, comma, the only real you is the whole. And I'm not quite sure how that follows. Yeah, um, that's what I'm trying to work out. Only real you. Part of the context of this is a little bit of linguistic analysis about the way we tend to talk about the subject, capital I, right? Uh Uh-huh. I have a body is more common than I am a body. Agreed. Yeah, sure. I think that's how we talk. Mm -hmm. I is used as a center of voluntary behavior and conscious attention. It usually refers to a center in the body but different cultures place that in different places. Like we put it in the head. Apparently the Greeks put it in the heart, right, etc. But that it all comes down to the, there being some sort of central ego or controlling officer or homunculus that we place somewhere inside the skin bag. You can put it in different places. But that its primary functions are center of conscious attention and determiner of voluntary behavior is his, you know, sort of quick linguistic analysis of the way we use the the word I. And that all seems fine to me. Sure. But that doesn't help me. So that's kind of him defining the you part, you know, in this, the conclusion of the very short argument being you is the whole. 
Uh, all right. So what's the definition of you? It's that thing, you know. It's the center of conscious experience and voluntary behavior determiner. But still, how does that make me the whole? I don't know. I can't be if separated I'm part from the of the universe. universe yeah. yeah. I don't know. So we'll see if we can come back to it. We'll sort through the rest of what he develops in the book. So part of it, he goes, there's this coupling, this pair of relativism and holism. He uses a bunch of relativism, and I think that Watts thinks relativism taken to its logical conclusion leads you to holism. So he'll say things like this. The outside world has no color, shape, weight, heat, or motion without the inside brains. It has these qualities only in relation to brains. And that makes sense to me. I don't know if you like that relativist premise about, you know, the basic point that we talk about in philosophy of mind all the time. Colors not in the world. At best, there are different wavelengths of electromagnetic energy and we perceive them as, you know, so that the greenness of the grass is in the relationship of the way of the light to the eyeball, blah, 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 right? Mm, yep. And then he's got this kind of Wittgensteinian attitude when he writes, Problems that remain persistently insoluble should always be suspected as questions asked in the wrong way. The world is neither form mm -hmm. nor matter, for these two clumsy terms... Oh, these are two clumsy terms for the same process. Hmm. So that's in there and part of it. And we like that. We've talked about that episode 14 or whatever. <laughs> and then he does a bit of sort of to invite another character to the party. I think this move comes from Whitehead, though he doesn't cite him as such. <laughs> when he does a sort of really brief kind of intellectual history story where he's like, how did we get to this place and uh -huh. he starts from you know we had these religious stories about that there was the god up above that created everything and gave us the laws and then the scientific revolution killed god removed that from the story but kept the material and the laws so now we don't know how the material got mm -hmm. here or how the laws got here, but we've still got those. And I think that's what he calls the crackpot myth. Because he said God was the potter who threw the world on a wheel, you know, and created the material on the potter's wheel. And then science came in, killed God, cracked the pot. So now science is the crackpot myth. Was retained without <laughs> the potter. The world was still understood as an artifact but on the model of an automatic machine. The laws of nature were still there without a lawmaker, giving us a fully automatic model. The all-too-intelligent God being replaced by a cosmic idiot. Which I guess would be the Big Bang or whatever. And then the dumb, mute evolution of material according to the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Yep. And here's his philosophy of science in poetic form. The man hmm. behind the microscope has this advice for you. Instead of asking what it is, 
Just ask, what does it do? Which is, I guess, you know, taking this step out from crackpot artifactual material reality to relational functional relativism. Yes. That it's not about what things are, but it's about how we interact with the things. Or how the things interact with each other. Yeah. Even though there aren't any separate things that are interacting, because it's all just one whole ah. <laughs> well, that's the, I mean, I think that's what we're trying to figure out here, right? I mean, ultimately. And, and so then the we've problem. got the, the big other problem that he summarizes in this sense. Our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own. For we think mm -hmm. in terms of language and images, yeah. which we did not invent, but which were given by society. I like, that. I like that you're nodding along with that one. I also, like, that's a premise that I'm willing to accept. And I also feel that how that serves his argument. Uh-huh. I do too. I, uh, <laughs> so there is something. Yeah. That's a kernel or a little, like, nugget that I'm like, oh, okay, I'm starting to crack between... The you're not separate from the universe, together. so everything's the same. Yeah, like I'm, or everything is. You are. What was the second? You are already. You are the whole, or whatever. That part is kind of. That's the connecting. You know, the leg bones connected to the hip bone, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's a little because bit because we there. want. We might want to say if anything is separate and us and uh, you know i is it would be our own private thoughts and emotions right but if what you do is merely reflect your culture then how are you not your culture just at a smaller scale now yeah i'm not saying and that then that's, we're fractal again yeah and then we're fractal again however i don't know if that's totally i don't know if that's justified um, because yeah, who gives a shit? We're not here. We're not totally exegetical <laughs> on the dawdlers. We're trying to come up with some shit. I know. I just was thinking, like, well, you could just say, well, it, it's it really does seem like he's trying to say this whole you're unique, I'm unique, we don't see the same color, we don't like that's all bullshit. It seems like you know is what he seems to be saying is that. It's it's all the same. It's the, and I'm, we've encountered this form of radical holism before a few times. I think in conversations with friends and stuff like that. It's all just one big whole thing. You can't downscale. You can't upscale. It's just you just encounter more of the same. And to you know, I'm surprised he never decided then to talk about like the patterns of hurricanes and the patterns of galaxies, or you know what I mean, like why didn't you know he, he might as that could have been useful to him, I suppose, you know, or the egg, or you know, just the way things look. What do you co connect this dot better? Well, a, a hurricane has a center, and then it has these arms that come out. And a galaxy can have that look as well. You know, like the idea that, you know, you'd have a, maybe you have an idea about what the picture of the Milky Way looks like. And then on the planet, on a planet, you have patterns of, you know, 
you know, moisture and, and, and air pressure that create this cloud formation that looks very similar. It's all, you know, like it's all part of the same thing. It's all creating the same kind of picture. You know, it, it reports to the same source or whatever it is, because it is the same source. If you okay. have private thoughts that is just your culture, then you are just culture. You know, it's it's the fractal thing. But then if some aspect of our solar system mimics the aspect of the galaxy and the planets, you know, have things that mimic the aspect of the, or whatever, the patterns or whatever of the, you know, it's like it's all just the same geometric what am I trying to say? It's I'm I'm trying to say something. It's like it's all the same kind of marathon of scale, you know, or whatever. You never quite reach the end because it's always you can always you know halfway to here, halfway to there. You know, it's always just the same thing or whatever. You're never gonna finish. You're always gonna be the part of the whole. But that doesn't mean oh, you can't. Yes, yeah, so and now we've got Zeno's paradoxes. <laughs> Into the party. That isn't yeah. to say that there isn't an answer to Zeno's paradox or whatever. But this, I think, I'm just trying to get a sense for what he's thinking, or what he's trying to say or communicate when he talks about yep. when he makes that jump between you're not separate from the universe, you are the universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. So yeah. That's it. I, yeah, I like that. Adding those little memes in there. We have now found out that many things which we felt to be basic realities of nature are social fictions arising from commonly accepted traditional ways of thinking about the world, including the world is made up of separate bits or things. Things are differing forms of some basic stuff. Individual organisms are such things inhabited by independent egos. Opposite poles of relationships are in conflict. Death is evil, and life must be a war against it. And man must aspire to be the top species in control of nature. All of which sounds like reasonable interpretations of the status quo. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that, he's like setting up his thing that he's going to break down now. <laughs> yeah. And he's saying, you know, and he adds right after that, fictions are useful so long as they are taken as fictions. But the trouble being that... Oh, and he, I, I thought I was paraphrasing him, but then I noticed my next highlighted sentence. The troubles begin when the fictions are taken as facts. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. I agree. Good job, Watts. So, And then there's also this whole subset of these fictions that he calls the social double bind game hmm. you know as a game player oh yeah to rope the triumph in you like you so here's the what he claims are the rules of the social game first rule of the game it's not a game <laughs> <laughs> everyone must play uh-huh. you must love us <laughs> You must continue to live slash play the game. You know, no quitting. Be yourself, but play an acceptable role. Control yourself, but be natural. (laughs) Oh, God. This is awful. Try to be sincere. (laughs) Oh, God. 
which, you know, it got a lot of laughs out of that audience. And, you know, this is, again, bringing the humor in and whatever, but it's also it's relatively deep and interesting set of claims. I like all that stuff. <sighs> like, that's what society is. Yeah, no, it brings you back to the COVID thing. You know, they seem to say one thing and then say the opposite. I can't remember all the details now of what it was that I, I saw at various times. What was it? It's like exercise, but don't exercise too much, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, the whole, right. When you, you no matter what you do, yeah, you're, you're going to die or you're going to exactly. kill other people. or you know. Right. You know, exercise, but don't go out and exercise too much. You'll kill yourself and other people. Yeah, that sucks. I hate that game so much. <laughs> I know, but there's not enough of it. And, you know, that's the whole thing about the trouble being is when fictions are taken as facts or games are taken as not games. The first rule of the game is it's not a game. Yeah. And right. if no, more for sure. of us agreed that, no, it just is a game. Like, rule one is wrong. That's a fiction. The world would be such a better place. Yeah. Unfortunately... Most of our fellows abide by rule one and like they were fucked from the outset as soon as they think this is not a game. Uh, yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. Uh, uh, have there, I mean, one of the things about him is that he's a, you know, he's a relativist. Primarily, I think where a lot of relativists come from is that they experience a whole bunch of cultures. Like you were talking about, some people, you know, the homunculus is in the head, some it's in the heart, whatever it is. So I wonder if that all cultures seem to consider it in this way. If this is sort of a universal thing, that the first rule of the game is that it's not a game. Is that found everywhere? I imagine. I, I mean, if someone said, "Yeah, that sounds about right," I'd be like, "Damn." You know, I guess I believe you. <laughs> I would like to think there's cultures out there that think the game is not a game. I mean, the game is a yeah, game, you know, or whatever. I don't, I'm not enough of an anthropologist to know. I also hope that there are some yeah. that take it a little less seriously than America 2020 does. Yeah. Or, you know, a whole bunch of things like France and the revolution or, oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe there have been cultures in the past. I, I just don't know. It is essential to understand this point thoroughly. Uh-oh. Audience. <laughs> the thing in itself is not only unknowable, it does not exist. So this is, you know, to go back to last week and Rority or whatever, where, you know, this is the whole Kant revolution the you know the kantian slash copernican revolution in philosophy where okay well yeah we can't know what reality is like but they still enshrined this notion that there is a reality out there there is a noumena there is a thing in itself it's just that it's removed from me mm -hmm. the watts revolution is going a step further from kant and saying it's not only that you don't know anything about it that thing that you're talking about itself is just a fiction. It's not there. Yeah. It, this is not to say only that things exist in relation to one another, but that what we call things are no more than glimpses 
of a unified process. And that reminds me of the blind man and the elephant, right? You mean you just know, that, that everybody's... Story, ta- yeah, I know the story, but you're just saying that people yeah. are just taking a leg or a tail or whatever and they're the trunk and they're just saying it's this and some, you know, but really it's all just one big elephant. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's all the phenotype of the expressed information in the DNA or whatever. You can call it a tail, but if you want to get, okay, so to take an analogy, and this is going way back in my memory. I haven't read this forever, but there was a guy named Roger Jones who wrote, uh, who was a physicist and wrote a book about physics is metaphor, I think was the title. Mm. And one of the points in this book, if I remember it accurately, is, uh, all right, measure a table top. That's something we should be able to do as scientists. It's operationally defined. I've got my ruler. I've got my table. I put one next to another. I observe what marking, you know... But the physicist, of course, gets all pedantic about it and says, all right, well, look closer and magnify in and whatever. Yeah, it might be near this ink blot on your ruler, but that itself has a length, you know. And you can't get a precise length of the table. You can only get an approximation Yep. that's good enough for your purposes. Does that table then have a length? Or are there atoms moving in and out? Or like, how could you ever find it if there was one or whatever? So I think that Kant would say, yes, the table has a length, but we can't measure it. And Watts is saying tables don't even have lengths. And to relate this back to the elephant story, where does the elephant's tail end and its body begin? Or whatever, right? There's no... You can chop it up for your own purposes, Mr. Butcher, and sell me a rump roast. But that doesn't mean, because our society functions that way, and you can go to New Seasons and order a tenderloin, that doesn't mean that bovine bodies really are chopped up that way. Is this helping? Like, I... For me, it it like that was to me like I convinced my I was like oh that's good, but I don't know how it sounds to the rest of you. Well, to me, that's hard to say because I guess the idea is you're carving nature at its joints that that type of thing. Literally, yeah, but the Watsian <laughs> nature doesn't have joints. But the what in nature doesn't have joints? The Watsesque. Oh, the, the Watsian nature. Yeah. It has no joints. That that's right. That makes sense. Yep. And so, in that sense, yes, I, I when I go there, but that doesn't include my heavily biased view of tails and butts. You know. Well, I. Th- what do you mean? There are benefits that you can point to that accrue from. Carving the world in that way. Yeah. If we go back to the length idea, for my purposes, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the measuring something's length is like a game, right? Because there are all these basic rules that you apply to the, 
to the situation and at the end of the game you have some number or whatever now is that number heavily reliable all the way to the you know end of the existence of time and everything no but it's just you know i'm gonna you know with this crude instrument just gonna say yeah it's 30 inches or whatever that's 30 meters that's you know that kind of thing and while that's perhaps not doing philosophy uh it it is a, a way of drawing a picture it's like he was saying before he was like you learn certain tools to be able to express certain things that you do you know and that's kind of ultimately if he's saying there is no length that's fine with me um but we still carve nature at its joints i don't know how else to put it but this is going back to the idea of don't the fiction is not a fact or whatever the hell it is yeah you can't carve nature at its joints if it doesn't have joints right no i get it what you're saying yeah so then what are people doing and they're selling meat at the grocery store. They're participating in a game yes. that works for certain purposes. Sure. And that's what I was saying about the length. Works for certain purposes of primarily, I think, when you're taking the measurement of something, it's I think it's serving communication, right? So that somebody else can say, well, I can say, okay, well, I'm moving my this desk into your house. It's 30 inches long you know wide or whatever and you're like oh crap i did a measurement of my door and it's 25 inches or something like that like i'm communicating to you something about yeah this world or whatever and so that's kind of that's but the game is the measurement and specifically as to whether or not i take into account the width of the ink blot or whatever though that's obviously drilling down beyond what the game's purpose is is for or whatever Yep. Well, it's, and this is where I bring in the terms projects and concerns. I'm concerned with the quote unquote length of the table because it's relevant to my project of transporting that table inside my kitchen. I'm content with a certain degree of crudeness. Right. Because that's enough. All that matters for me for this project or what, you know, that's why I'm concerned. You know, it's good enough to measure it and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, I mean, in the Watsy thing, he's going all the way to, I think, in order... I don't know if he would say this or not. But in order to be consistent, it seems as though he would have to say, there's no length of the table just as there is no you or kitchen or project of transporting the table. That's fine. And I don't have... I'm not arguing against that. But I am trying to digest it. And I'm trying to operate out of what framework, you know? And that's the part that at the moment is sort of confusing. I tried to import fractal geometry into the situation, but I'm not exactly sure if that's that's the framework that's matching with what it is that he's saying. But at the same time, is it just the the language game or whatever? Is that the, the framework that you know, that, that Watts is operating out of. And that's why a length doesn't exist. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, 
what's his base of operation? You know, and it, it, like, is it language? Is it is it the the physical activities? Is it all of it? And if it's all of it, then that's a bigger project. So how are is all of it something that gets unified under his you know way of looking at the world or whatever? I like the fractal point. I don't know if it connects up or in what way it connects up with yeah, I don't Watts' either. claims. I, 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 it was a shot I, in the dark. <laughs> I still kind of like the Butcher example. And I think that it does connect up with the Watts. And just the idea that you know you can carve things up metaphorically or literally and you can say oh yeah well this is a cut of meat x but that doesn't mean it exists in the body of the cow it exists in the culinary game sure yeah so a uh, ribeye is there's no ribeye in the cow is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. It, there's muscles yeah. and things, or is there muscles? That's the other question. So well, when... not really, because then I think, I think that he's just universalizing that step. Yeah. If you can take some, some example, of a quote-unquote thing, and realize, oh, that thing isn't in the cow; it's just in the grocery store, or it's in the commercial interaction, or the consumption interaction, or whatever. So that's not really out there. It's just in our game. Now do that move with everything. <laughs> Tables and chairs and beer bottles and whatever. Those don't exist out there. They just exist in various language games, human interaction. You know, it's all... So the question for me is, is he trying to say, and I'm importing a Donetian thing. I would say these other words, but right now I just want to stick with a simpler way of do it, talking about it. it would would alan watts say it's all designs with designers or it's all designs without designers it's all design ed in other sort of in the who was the biologist that said everything is the way it is because it got that way isn't that a bumper sticker i think from one of i forget who said it but so I think I don't know that one. Watts would probably again try to jump out of that game. Is it designed with a designer or not? I don't know. I mean, it's not really designed or it's all designed. Either way. Tom Robbins said, I believe in nothing. Everything is sacred. <laughs> I believe in everything. Nothing is sacred. You know, and that those are kind of complementary faces that are different ways of perceiving, but they come out in the same in the wash. So that, all right, well, is everything designed by an intelligence or by an unintelligence? It doesn't really matter. You can look at everything as designed if you want, or you can say nothing was designed. But either way, it just is what it is because it got that way. Well, then how do we talk about the butcher and the butcher's game? Versus what it is that the butcher is cutting up, which is some other game, potentially, right? So if these are... How do we do it? We do it by playing the game. 
Which game? The butcher game. Okay, we do it by we do it by do playing the butcher game, but the cow's not going to cut themselves up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's no game in for Monty the cow. Python, they would, know, right? No. Yeah, <laughs> but there's no game for the cow. The cow, you know what I mean. So it's like for us, there's a ribeye in there. So now we universalize that to saying, well, then there's probably no muscle, or you know, it's all just one thing. I don't know. It's a tough one. I mean, it's a tough I, so one. So here's, to here's totally another thing just... that he says later. Yeah. So this is taking it's. He's skipping slightly ahead of where you are because he's saying, if you did do this, you know, when he writes, as soon as one sees that separate things are fictions, it becomes obvious that non-existent things cannot perform actions. The difficulty is most languages are arranged so that action verbs have to be set in motion by thing nouns. We forget that the rules of grammar are not necessarily the patterns of nature. And I know that you hadn't totally bought step one yet, as soon as you see that separate things are fictions. But you could instead conditionalize it and say, well, if you were to grant that separate things are fictions, then it seems obvious that these fictions can't do anything so then you wouldn't be able to ask the question or make the statement, well, cows don't play games or whatever. Well, because there aren't cows in the first place. By the time you've said cows doing things, you're playing the English game and a bunch of other games. You know, you're playing a bunch of different levels of games, but they're all happening inside the nervous system game because it's all activities of your nervous system and then you're playing the english game because these are all sentences of english and then you're you know there's layers and layers i must not be i mean i'm i must not understand it well enough because i keep going back then to saying well then what is it you know there there might as well not be a there is no language game like there is no it's all just the nervous system game or there's no nervous system game it's all just the whatever game do you know what i'm saying like yeah i like when you do the, like uh the question you asked allows what the next quote i had from watts <laughs> to answer i think quite directly okay. so if you if your question is so but yeah 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 alan but what is it quote to put it clumsily it is what it does more precisely, the organism, including its behavior, is a process which is to be understood only in relation to the larger and longer process of its environment. Parts are fictions of language that exist only for purposes of figuring and describing. We become confused if we do not remember this all of the time. Not that that's a good answer, but I feel like it's a pretty direct Watts answer to what you just asked. Yeah, I mean, parts are, f are fictions based in language or whatever, right? Yep. The cow, including its behavior, is a process to be understood only in relation to the environment. To chop it out in, and call it a part, a separate object, that's just English doing its thing. The only reason it's there is because you, 
or another organism doing what it does, and what you does is talk in English, and you write books and treatises and have podcasts, and you know, so you're just another aspect of the whole, a little part that you can concentrate on if you choose to, doing its thing. This is why he's at the margin. Ah, oh, oh, okay. Right. This is this is it. Because he won't. He's asking Richard Dawkins to accept what Richard Dawkins would believe to be totally and utterly absurd. Right. Dawkins would scoff heartily at this notion, which is not an un. You know, I I have a feeling that this this view is not unique to Watts, right? This view has got to have been right. encountered on a number of occasions. You can't look at a tree and say it is itself just a tree. It is only in the context of you know all the other things that are around it: birds, soil, wind, you know, whatever we would discretize. But if you stop discretizing all that stuff, you see that it's just one big thing, all kind of happening together or whatever. And that things we pick out, yep. and of course there's no, I don't know why we're picking things out. That throws a wrench in it to me, but that's a whole separate thing or not. It's not separate from the universe. Because that's the other thing. Why would things... If everything's just a whole, then why would something within that whole pick out things separately? Why wouldn't it just behave as a whole? Well, it is behaving as a whole. It can do no other. In the course of its behaving, it happens to play language games. You know, the cow chews its cud and you write a poem. And this is, I mean, maybe it's another example of this thing that you don't like of, you know, making everything this postmodern flatness or whatever, you know, that all of your science is in some way equivalent to a cow munching some hay or whatever they do. Because it's just, and Watts's version of the flattening is, well, you're both just parts of the whole, well, I mean, you're, you're both just doing what you do. Well, why are we yeah. privileging whole over parts? Meaning, if it's all just a language game, whole is just another part of the language. Because of premise one, no thing or feature of this universe is separable from the whole of the universe. Okay. So we already accepted that there is a whole. We're problematizing whether there are also parts. Because Part people have both, right? Well, yeah, of course there's a whole, but there's also the parts that make up the whole. Right. But the holist says, well, maybe we should just Occam's razor off parthood itself. Mm -hmm. Everybody agrees there's a whole, so I don't need to establish that. But you need to, the burden is on you to prove to me that there are parts. And you haven't, or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think. <laughs> this is again me adding my Right, stuff. I was going to say burden of proof, Jesus Christ. I think that, I wouldn't say that 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 is settled per se. But just because we agree that there is a whole and someone wants to defect and say, aha, but there are no parts, doesn't mean that the whole doesn't also come under scrutiny, does it not? Just because we agree, that doesn't mean that the whole is, it is uh, exempt 
from this same line of questioning, right? Why wouldn't the whole it's all start it's all part of the language. It's all part of the language game. We're picking out a whole. A whole in and of itself is a discrete entity, is it not? So then what is the whole in the context of? How do we know it's a whole? Well, as I understand it, and if I'm using these words right, I think this is a debate within what they call mirology, the study of parts and wholes. Sure. And Watts is being a strict holist, and then you could all... But the, the mirological position of, yes, but there are also parts, is his foil. And he's saying, against you, part person, I don't need to make an ontological argument for the existence of wholes, because part people already accept wholes. They only add something additional. I'm not going the other direction and arguing against the nihilist who says, there is nothing. Against him, I might have to argue positively for the existence of a and whole. And that would be not beneficial to your argument against the parts. Because the whole, the idea about the parts not existing is that they are in the context of each other and everything is one thing. But then if a whole, how do you know it's a whole? Where does the, where does the whole end? If it is a whole, if you were to give it a linguistic object, whole. Like, how do you know? What is it that guides you to know that it is whole? He uses a couple of what now sound like kind of cliche or trite examples. I don't know if they sounded this way in the 1950s. <laughs> One of them is, I will draw, I will pick up my chalk and I will make a circular motion on the chalkboard, leaving behind some residue. I'll ask the students, what have I done? Most of them will say, well, you drew a circle on the board. Few of them will say, oh, you artistically indicated a hole in the chalkboard. Or whatever, you know. But that both of those, when considered, are equally viable interpretations one of which privileges the interior, you made a circle, you drew, you know, and the other privileges the exterior, you made a hole in the chalkboard. Every boundary, by definition, has an inside and an outside. And that because of that, if you have anything, if you have boundaries at all, then you automatically have to have holes. W-H-O-L-E. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> And the other example is that he will talk about rainbows, right? Being the kind of paradigm case of the quote-unquote object that only exists because there's an observer and a point of view and whatever. It's not totally relative because you can have intersubjective agreement. If you brought a crowd of people, they would all hallucinate the same rainbow. And they could agree about where it is, what its shape is, which where it appears to end, etc., but uh, which colors on top, all these things. They'd agree about a bunch of things, but there's also a, a sensible claim, well, that rainbow's not really there, quote-unquote, you know. You can't ride on it or touch it. or it's, not, it's only in the relationship between the observer or the crowd of observers, and the raindrops and the sun and the whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just in this relationship. 
and I think that he's just claiming everything, including the beer bottle <laughs> and including you, is a rainbow. Everything is a, a hole in the chalkboard. Everything is a rainbow. It's all fictional and it's all interpretable in at least two ways. It's all intelligently desi- designed and ignorantly designed and not designed. I don't know. <laughs> and and this and the science guy is like, okay, you know what? It's fucking late, and this is bullshit, and I quit. Well, no, I just don't think any of the <laughs> what I what I was asking was not answered, and so I think because there is no answer, and that's fine. I think he just found a place potentially to stop, and he was like, okay, I like this. Just to be clear, could you phrase bluntly what the question is that is unanswered in your opinion? If something we call a hole has a boundary and it doesn't have parts, how do we know it's a hole? What is the context we are provided? If it has context, then what is that context and is it part of it? I don't... That's not blunt enough or whatever. It has a boundary, right? But the hole doesn't have a boundary, I don't think. Why not? And the and his point is there are no boundaries. Parts. Well, there are perceived boundaries as there are perceived rainbows. But there are no boundaries, right? I mean, that's the language game. Perceived this I, and that. Yeah, I guess so. So there yeah. are no boundaries. Yeah. So then there's no hole. There's just a... There's only the No, hole. there's only a boundless open. Like, there's no boundaries. A hole needs some boundary. In order for us to... Even science doesn't say that, right? Why not? The universe... Fuck. However they talk the about multiverses works, and like shit. It's... Bubbles in a bathtub. I mean, scientists talk about that stuff. Uh, but regardless, um, if it's a hole, hole of what? I don't. I don't buy the contextless entity. He's asking us to say that parts are not separable from the universe, but then asking us to buy that the universe is separate from nothing and everything. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, okay, are there boundaries or not? If there are no boundaries, then there is no whole. It's just whatever. We don't even know. It just goes. But boundaries give us context. This is my whole thing about individuals and groups. Like it's it's the mirology thing, and I guess it would depend on what your definition of whole is. But a whole without a boundary, I don't know. If I'm willing I to guess go that the far, question or the family of questions that feels unanswered is unanswered, but it's Wittgenstein style claimed that it's a bad question. I think is the Watts response to that. Like, you're so entrenched in your game that you're not able to get outside that and see that that question only seems like a question because you're so thoroughly bewitched by language and culture and blah, 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 that you think it's a question, but you need to transcend that and get out of get outside and realize that's not a good question. Maybe. This is this is if that that's, is what Watts thought, then this is a problem with margin hunters in my view. 
It's because they never have, they never, they're always right, you know? There's no test they can go up against because there's always a way out. And it's, uh, you know, to me, that's sort of like, well, then, uh, okay. I can see now why you're at the margin because people are like, all right, well, I asked, I tried, but I'm not getting a whole lot except for that I'm the one who doesn't understand. Okay. And geniuses may be that way and that's fine, but I guess I'm just one of the idiot morons. <laughs> and, you know, like... Finally! <laughs> that's what it took to get you to admit it? Yeah. Alan Wartz! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Any suddenly known future is an event of which we can say you've had it. And in that sense, it's past. When we play a games, and we say in chess or in a bridge or whatever game you're playing, the outcome of the game becomes certain. We at that point cancel the game and begin a new one. Because the whole zest of the thing, and which takes me back to the idea that this whole thing is a hide-and-seek game, is that you don't know what the next order coming up is. But one thing you can be sure of, it will be an order, and it will comprehend you. At the moment, we stand at a time in history where we're beginning to think of the great countdown on the end of the human race. Terrifying possibility that through atomic energy, we may obliterate this planet and uh, turn the whole globe into a star. Maybe that's the way all the stars started. Imagine, you know, this great thing coming up. The countdown on the end. Seven, six, Five, four, three, two, one. Where have you heard that before? <laughs>